Cat 3. End game. Quoting Will Eric Poikert. The Renaissance is a rebirth of the occult sciences, and not, as taught in schools, the resurrection of classical philology and a forgotten vocabulary. Chapter 8 1484 Part 1 A Wingless Fly The historian too often tends to endow facts and the chronology of events with fundamental importance, forgetting that the causes of these facts are very complex and cannot be reduced to a denominator of an economic nature. I do not intend to take up here what I have explained elsewhere in more detail. The present study centres on the rise of modern science, having established that modern science presupposes a very different mentality from that of the sciences of the Renaissance. The historian of ideas has not only the right but the duty to inquire into the causes that have produced the tremendous change in human imagination that has led to the transformation of the methods and goals of the natural sciences. There are, of course, many superficial replies to this question, fundamental to the history of our culture. Or without the telescope, they say, Galileo could not have contributed to a more precise picture of the solar system. Nevertheless, without using any optical instrument, Copernicus had long before envisaged a heliocentric or heliostatic universe according to a Pythagorean model. And long before Copernicus, Nicholas of Cusa had postulated the infinitude of the universe and outgrowth of ideas deriving from his personal metaphysics. This easily demonstrates that technical advances have played a marginal role in forming the spirit of modern science. Another hypothesis, just as superficial, states that Renaissance sciences had amply demonstrated that they lacked utility. It was natural that they should have been replaced by sciences whose practical results, modern technology, compelled recognition due to their pragmatic usefulness. The postulate of this thesis is that their very method put a check on the Renaissance sciences such as astrology, medicine, alchemy and magic. We cannot deny that in quite numerous cases these sciences had failed. There is absolutely no reason, however, to doubt the confidence placed in them in their time. Astrology was not infallible, but many of its predictions turned out to be more or less accurate or were adjusted in retrospect, so that they seemed to pertain to recent events. Just as individual errors did not lower the prestige of an astrologer, so his correct or nearly correct predictions were capable of earning him an undeserved reputation. Whether truth or legend, the English astrologer John of Eschenden claims to have foreseen the plague epidemic of 1347 to 1348, the German astrologer Lichtenberger, the birth and career of Luther, and another astrologer of the 16th century, Carion, said to have made many mistakes, seem to have predicted accurately the French Revolution of 1789. Far from being a fading science, 16th century astrology inspired a general confidence which must have outstripped by far its real utility.
However, it is only a posteriori that we can judge it. For people in the Renaissance, the utility of astrology was esteemed as highly as the theory of radioactivity or of relativity is in our day. With regard to astrological medicine, a very complicated and rigorous science, though it may have been founded on infantile premises, its natural remedies were to prove effective in some cases, which applies that its practical value was no less than that of astrology. The doctors themselves, having no reason to scorn their own theoretical and practical knowledge, there is no cause to doubt that they had the same assurance and self-possession as their modern colleagues, which, in less serious cases, must have sufficed to cure the patients. The patients themselves were usually so ignorant that they cared little about the doctor's methods, provided they had a personal confidence in him. In our day, the situation has not much changed from this point of view, and if, by some miracle, all our doctors were supplanted by iatro mathematicians or iatro chemists, most patients would not even notice it. Of all the Renaissance sciences, alchemy experienced the most failures. Since, however, it had an important role to play in iatrochemical remedies, and even in those of astrological medicine, we cannot altogether deny its utility. To the extent that it was closely connected with sciences whose effectiveness was accepted by most people, alchemy had no reason to believe itself fundamentally threatened. The great number of charlatans discredited it, of course, but Newton's application of alchemy shows us that it had not lost interest for the most enlightened minds of the 17th century. Some historians of science still wonder why, if alchemy was of basic importance to Newton, he published everything except his alchemical experiments. The answer is so simple that it is surprising it has been avoided or distorted so systematically. Newton lived in an era marked by the victory of Puritanism on the political level. Puritanism despised occult sciences because they did not conform to the spirit of the Bible. Newton did not make his alchemical experiments public because he had his head on his shoulders and preferred to have it stay there. For the psychological and even physical restraints imposed by the church's reform, Protestants, as well as Catholic, were no less than those imposed by the French Revolution at its height, or mutatus mutandus by the Soviet Revolution. With regard to magic, there is no doubt that it was as useful at the time of the Renaissance as was astrology. Let us not forget that, under the rubric of natural magic, very varied kinds of technical knowledge were in circulation, from the manufacturer of animal and vegetable dyes to pyrotechnics and optical procedures, as well as thergic and medical procedures, methods of cryptography, of stenography and telecommunication. Let us also not forget the techniques for manipulation of the individual and the masses which have only been fully applied in our day. As for the art of memory, it worked so well that it is astonishing that it fell into disuse in the 17th century. It is quite obvious that the Renaissance sciences, whatever their real value may have been, did not lack relative use value. All contemporary evidence to the contrary is suspicious, since it stems from writers seeking easy influence over their public. Giordano Bruno, a firm believer, did not hesitate in his comedy Il Candelaio to satirise Ficino's theory of mind and spirit, but he put it in the mouth of an unscrupulous charlatan. The conclusions based on passages of this type borrowed from the Italian writers are irrelevant, like 
judging Socrates' personality in the light of Aristophanes' plays. When all is said and done, the minorities during the Renaissance who enjoyed the satires on contemporary sciences must have been much less numerous and powerful than the organised groups who, in our time, protest against the use of modern technology. Another realm in which a very mistaken picture of the Renaissance prevails is the teaching and transmission of knowledge. There were famous universities at the time, proud of their tradition, which conferred prized degrees. These degrees affected the practice of a profession to such an extent that we see Agrippa of Nettesheim, in order to obtain a position, assume false titles, which, even with the royal privilege that seemingly made them unnecessary, he definitely needed. There is no doubt that a degree from the Sorbonne or the University of Padua represented a guarantee for these institutions of higher learning were reputed to convey infallible knowledge whose usefulness in a given social context it would be idle to dispute. Just as it would be idle to dispute in their instance their absolute value of a practical nature. The mistaken principle made by most cultural historians amounts to denying the validity nowadays of that knowledge and those degrees. It is obvious that no university in the world would agree to grant the chair of theoretical physics or medical semiology to a graduate of the Sorbonne of 1500. But this strange reasoning does not carry the conviction that, since the knowledge of a graduate in the year 1500 is rejected in our time, it was also rejected by its contemporaries, without taking into account the existence of disciplines in the humanities wherein we could place far more faith in a degree from the 16th century than in one dated 1987. Renaissance society reveals few signs of decadence. It is not in a state of crisis and has very superficial doubts concerning its own institutions and ideological and practical truths. The hypothesis that the developing sciences lacked practicality must be discarded. It is merely an a posteriori explanation of the transformation of the scientific spirit and as such must be discarded as untrue. On the other hand, if we wish to understand anything about the historical enigma, the rise of modern science, which occurred just when it was not needed, we must first go to the heart of the Renaissance sciences, of which astrology, because of its universality, was the most important. Magic, medicine, and even alchemy can be regarded in a way as astrological disciplines. Another fundamental factor of Renaissance ideology is Christian doctrine and the Church, which never altogether accepts the message of science. Revealed truth was hegemony over all temporal truth, which can only be relative to the former. Modern science emerges from an interaction of very complex ideological forces by a process resembling the natural selection of species. Now we know that this is not determined by a providential law, but rather by environmental accidents. Accidents which Jacques Monod has perhaps erroneously called chance. What chance has a wingless fly to obtain food in our climate? None, because, not having means to move quickly and without a reliable shelter like subterranean worms, it will easily fall prey to birds. This genetic mutant will be eliminated by natural selection. 
However, this is the same selection which, on a very windy island in the Galapagos archipelago, wiped out the normal population of flies equipped with wings which are incapable of fighting the wind. Only wingless flies were spared because they move on the ground and birds find it hard to catch them. A wingless fly is, by definition, a sick fly, that particular mutation depriving it of the ability to survive. In a certain ecological niche, however, it is only these mutations, these aberrant products of nature, that have the good fortune to be preserved. This is exactly what happens to the modern scientific spirit, the spirit of experimentation that abandons broad assumptions in order to construct purely inductive arguments. It was no bird of paradise, hatched all at once by providence or the non-existent laws of the triumphant history of the Hegelian spirit to replace the Renaissance sciences, worthless and henceforth without appeal. On the contrary, our modern scientific spirit was born like a wingless fly which, in the fierce whirlwinds of the history of the 16th century, had the good luck to remain unobserved and not to be eliminated by harsh natural selection. The latter struck Renaissance sciences so hard that they could never right themselves again. Let us examine more closely the situation in which our wingless fly becomes able to procreate. The witch-burning stakes covered Europe. The Reformation would have preferred that the only book surviving on earth be the Bible. But in any case, it was not inclined to tolerate either Eros. But in any case... It was not inclined to tolerate either Eros or magic or the contiguous sciences of the Renaissance. A magic invocation or an alchemical experiment could have cost a man his head. Fear justified everything, and that is why people gave up astrology, magic and alchemy, or retired into cautious silence, as did Newton on matters of an occult nature. The Catholic Church not only called for a change in morals, but also undertook the zealous defence of what it considered most previous Thomism. Galileo brushed against the stake, not because he was a representative of modern science, which he surely was not, but because he dared to oppose Thomism. Bruno was consumed by flames because he was an unrepentant magician, not because he defended the ideas of the Cardinal of Cusa. Everywhere, people engaged in less offensive occupations, which could not run counter to the image of the world and of human society that conformed with one or another of the Christian churches. They were coerced into expressing themselves cautiously, into carefully hiding their goals. Some enthusiastic Pythagoreans remained, a Galileo or a Kepler, but their kind was being stamped out. There were Descartes and Bacon, still strongly suspected of having sympathised with the farce of the Rosicrucians, and whose real intentions it is not easy to decipher. Were they the representatives of a new world? If so, they certainly did not represent the forthcoming world any more than their philosophy was a modern philosophy. At a given moment, censorship transformed personality. People had lost the habit of using their imagination and thinking in terms of qualities, for it was no longer permitted. 
loss of the faculty of active imagination, naturally entailed strict observation of the material world, revealed by an attitude of respect for all quantitative data and suspicion for every qualitative statement. In a certain sense, it can be said that flies that fly have a completely different image of the world than that of flies that crawl, lacking wings. But this comparison seems to imply a value judgment it does not wish to make. Renaissance man and present-day man may have the same external form, but the latter is a psychological mutation of the former within the same species. Those who contend that people of the Renaissance felt, thought, and acted like us are greatly mistaken. On the contrary... We have the time-honoured custom of seeking within ourselves the world image of the Renaissance person, to such an extent that he is confused with our own unconscious, with what we have learned to uproot and mutilate within ourselves. He is a sickly colleague that we still harbour within ourselves because we cannot rid ourselves of him. If he is a caricature of ourselves, since he collects all our most infantile and absurd traits, let us put ourselves in his place for a moment. Of course, it is most likely that he has no more flattering an image of us than we have of him. But any communication is impossible, for the barriers of our era do not give way, and there is even less hope that this disturbing visitor from our depths may disappear forever. For lack of reaching a friendly understanding, we must learn to gaze at him without too much condescension. For we have lost that which he had, and he lacks what we have mastered. When all is said and done, these quantities are equal. And if we have accomplished some of the most burning wishes of his imagination, we must not forget that we have destroyed just as many others, which may prove to be irretrievable. Part 2. Why was the year 1484 so formidable? In the kind of history popular with our contemporaries, emphasis is placed on events which, for the people of the Renaissance, were only of secondary importance. On the other hand, we obviously overlook what, in their view, was crucial. If we look at its chronology, the year 1484 is not particularly interesting. Columbus had not yet left. The Turks were not forcing the gates to the west any more than usual. The Neapolitan War had not yet broken out, causing the spreading of syphilis throughout Europe. The Reformation was still far away. The only event attributable to that year is the birth of Luther, although modern writers prefer to date it 1483. Luther himself inclining sometimes towards one date, sometimes towards the other. It is therefore surprising to learn that the astrologers of the period attributed tremendous importance to the year 1484. At least this time no a posteriori revision occurred, since those who expected something visible and tangible to happen in 1484 were all too disappointed. Alkindi, whose theory of stellar radiations is already known to us, had also formulated a theory of the general conjunctions of planets and their influence on the fate of religions. 
The general conjunctions depend on the periodic conjunctions of the higher planets, Jupiter and Saturn, since they advance the slowest. According to Alkindi, there were little conjunctions of planets occurring every 20 years, and finally greater ones every 960 years. The latter exert a crucial influence not only on observable nature, but also on political and religious deeds. Every great conjunction inaugurated a new era in history. The Christian Middle Ages knew of this theory through the Liber Magnarum Conjunctionum by Albu Massar, a disciple of Alkindi. Roger Bacon applies it to the birth of great personalities in history and to real or false prophets at intervals of 320 years. In this list we find first Alexander the Great, then Jesus, Mani, and Muhammad. In fact, a conjunctio magna had occurred in 7 to 6 BC in the signs of the fish and the ram. Kepler, who had carefully studied the conjunctio magna in, of 1604 in Sagittarius, wrote two treatises, De Stella Nova and De Vero Anno, in which he deals with the true date of the Saviour's birth. At the time of the conjunction of 1604, a nova appeared in the sky, at the very place where the three higher planets had converged. This is why Kepler believes that a new star had also announced the birth of Jesus, and that it was the Star of the Magi. Quote, this effect of the great conjunctions cannot be adequately explained by nature. God himself had to arrange it in some way. Experience bears witness that he placed in the sky these great conjunctions with miraculous stars, extraordinary, or other admirable works of his providence. That is why he decided to place the birth of his son, Christ, our Saviour, at the very moment of the great conjunction of the signs of the fish and the ram, circa punctum equinoctialum, by emphasising this dual fact. The event that occurred on earth and the conjunctions revealed in the sky through the appearance of a new star. By means of this he guided the Magi from the east to Palestine, to the important village of Bethlehem, and the stable where the king of the Jews was born. End quote. Kepler was not alone in following the conjunction of 1604. The editors of Rosicrucian manifestos also speculated on it, for they date the death of Christian Rosenkreutz in 1484 and the date of discovery of his tomb in 1604, representing the exact interval between two great conjunctions. We must not be surprised that the farce of the Rosicrucians fired the great minds of the Europe of those times with enthusiasm. The dates perfectly coincided with the astrological data, and a new world was expected after 1604. The disclosure of the secret order founded by Christian Rosenkreutz could only gratify to the full the hope aroused by the event whose importance is emphasised by Kepler. When Johann Valentin Andriae, who was one of the principal authors, characterised the Rosicrucian manifestos as ludibrium, which they actually were, no one wished to believe him. And Francis A. Yates explains many facets of Descartes' existence by a stubborn pursuit of the Rosicrucians, whose tracks, in a sense, he rediscovered. Kepler was neither the first 
nor the last to busy himself with the horoscope of Jesus Christ. Cardinal Pierre Delhi, 1350-1425, had set the fashion that was followed during the Renaissance by the great astrologer Luca Gaurico and the equally famous Girolamo Cardin. The horoscope projected by Pierre Delhi and taken up by Cardin was the basis for all ensuing efforts of this kind, such as that of Ebenezer Sibley, a complete illustration of the occult sciences, 1790. What could be read in Jesus' horoscope? His divine paternity, the birth of a royal house, the virgin birth, his humility, his death sentence, and his crucifixion. In short, the whole history of his human life and death. Of course, the fact that a cardinal and a bishop Gaurico dealt with this signifies that the enterprise, though neither commonplace nor safe, was nevertheless possible within certain limits. Indeed, if we grant the thesis of Jesus's two natures, divine and human, it is not absurd to apply to the man the limitations of astral destiny. To be sure, the church did not look well upon these efforts or upon astrology as a whole. Delhi Gaurico and Cardan had treated the subject of Jesus' birth according to conventional data. Kepler computed it for the spring of 6 BC, and Sibley, we know not why, for December 25th AD 45. Of them all, Kepler, influenced by the astrological events of the year 1604, is the cleverest, because he establishes a relationship between the birth of the Saviour, a conjunctio magna, and the appearance of a nova. The doctrine of conjunctions, derived from Al-Kindi and Albu-Massar, was linked to various theories of cosmic cycles formulated by Roger Bacon, Peter of Abano, the Abbot Trithemius, Adam Nahumosa, Kepler, and others. There is no perfect agreement among them, but they all stem from Al-Kindi's data, which Poikert sums up thus, quote, the conjunction of the higher planets repeats every 20 years. It changes four times in succession between the signs of a triangle. Finally, at the end of 240 years, it passes over to the triangle, following in the order of signs and repeats its cycle, likewise in the third and fourth triangles. After four times 240 years, 960, it is at its point of departure the first sign of the first triangle, at the same degree as at the beginning, and in passing over to the next degree, it begins a new cycle. There are, therefore, three principal periods or cycles. One, the small cycle of 20 years duration between two conjunctions. Two, the medium cycle of 240 years duration from one triangle to the other. 3. The large triangle of 960 years duration, lasting until the return of the conjunction to the same place in the zodiac. The last, which is almost a millennium, marks a complete renewal of the world. That involves a particular... That involves in particular a new religion. The medium one confines itself to... The medium one confines itself to great political upheavals, changes of government, etc. 
Finally, the small cycle generally indicates important events, royal successions, revolutions, and other crises of the state. End quote. If we took these numbers literally, the years 1484 and 1604 would be excluded from the list of all the conjunctions. Now, very important conjunctions occurred in 1345 in Aquarius, in 1484 in Scorpio, and in 1604 in Sagittarius. In December 1348, in his Summa Judicialis de Accidentibus, Mundi, the English astrologer John of Eschenden wrote, apropos of the plague that had just ravaged Europe, quote, It is exactly what I had written in the year 1345, for all that I had written then concerning the events of which I have just spoken corresponded to the opinion of many astronomers. The disasters I predicted occurred just after 1345 and on a grand scale. The mortality in 1347 and 1348 was such that the whole world seemed to be in a state of revolution, and in many countries towns and villages were deserted. Rare survivors fled those places, leaving their houses and their household goods behind. No one dared even to visit the sick or bury the dead for fear of contagion. End quote. Since John of Eschenden was referring in 1348 to an earlier prophecy that we do not have, we might conclude that he only formulated it after the event. On the other hand, we know that in Italy in the 15th century, people awaited the coming of a prophet who was supposed to be born or reveal himself in 1484. In October 1484, the Dutchman Paul of Middelburg, Bishop of Urbino, wrote his... Uh, Prognostica ad Viginti Annos Duratura, in which he tried to spread out the birth of the prophet in the belief that the results of the conjunction would extend over a period of 20 years. Consequently, the little prophet should have been born in 1503 and should have been active for 19 years. Paul of Middleburg complained of having been plagiarized by the German Johannes de Clara Monti. Lichtenberger, in his Practica. Middleburg's complaint, written in 1492, was contained in his Invectiva in Superstitiosum, Quemdam Astrologum, which did not later prevent Lichtenberger's prophecies from creating a great stir in northern Europe, since they were envisaged as having most strangely presaged the coming of Luther. Here is what Lichtenberger predicted about the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn and Scorpio, November 25th, 1484. A long quote here. This remarkable constellation and concordance of the planets shows that a little prophet will be born who will give an excellent interpretation of the scriptures and will also furnish responses with great respect for the divine being and will rally human souls to him. For astrologers call little prophets those who bring about changes in the laws or create new ceremonies or a divine interpretation to the word considered by men to be divine. I say that in the land under the sign of Scorpio, Germany, a prophet will be born, and beforehand the strangest and most extraordinary things will be seen in the heavens. 
but it is not possible to say at which end of the earth, the south or the north, since such numerous divergences exist in the opinions of scholars. Albumazar thinks it will be in Aquarius and towards the south, but most astrologers think it will occur toward the north. Be that as it may, says Masahala, he will be born in a country moderately warm and humid. A monk is seen wearing a white robe with the devil standing on his shoulders. He wears a full-length greatcoat with wide sleeves and a young monk follows him. He will have a very quick mind, know many things and possess great wisdom. However, he will often lie and have a heretical conscience. And, like a scorpion, for that conjunction occurs in the house of Mars and its shadows, he will emit a venomous sting from his tail and he will be the cause of great bloodlettings, and since Mars will announce him, it seems he will confirm the beliefs of the Chaldeans, as evinced by Messahala. Luther was probably born November 10th, 1483, but Philip Melanchthon, who firmly believed in astrology, connects his birth with the prophecies of Lichtenberger so that alternative dates appear, notably October 22nd and November 23rd, 1484. The most fashionable astrologer of the time, Luca Gaudico, calculated Luther's horoscope based on October the 22nd at 10 minutes past 1 in the morning. It clearly revealed the substance and destiny of a heretic. On the other hand, the German astrologers, Carion and Reinhold, both in favour of the Reformation, calculated it for the same date, but at nine in the morning, which yielded an entirely different result. All of the above stems from the astrologers' sympathies for one or the other party. What could not be in doubt was that in Italy and Northern Europe the coming of a little prophet was expected in 1484 because of the conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter in the Triangle of Aquarius. The testimony of Paul of Middleburg and of Johannes Lichtenberger is explicit. The results of the conjunction, however, were to include another realm as well. This time the explanation could only be a posteriori, which did not preclude it having been generally accepted. We know that if the plague wreaked havoc in the 14th century, syphilis, which was regarded as a form of plague, did no less between the 16th and 19th centuries. Imported from America, the French disease developed into a terrible epidemic during the campaigns of Charles VIII in Naples, 1495. At the beginning of the 16th century, Joseph Grunpeck, astrologer at the court of Maximilian of Austria, gave an astrological explanation for this phenomenon in his Tracticus de Pestilentiali Siora Siwe Maladi Fransos, Originem Remediaque Eustem Continens. Compilatus a Venerabili Vido Magistro, Joseph Grunpeck de Burkhausen supercarmina quaedam Sebastiane Brandt Utriusque Juris Professoris. This is what Grunpeck wrote. Quote, Brought down upon the world is this cruel disease, unheard of and unbelievable. The French disease that the conjunction of 1484 caused to cross over from France into northern Italy and thence into Germany. That is brought about, as we have seen, because Jupiter rules over France. 
Now, Jupiter is a hot and humid planet. End quote. The same interpretation is resumed and explored in depth by the astrologer Astroch, 1684 to 1765, in his treatise De Morbis Venereus of 1736. It is remarkable that the local treatment with mercury, which is still used in our time, not ineffectually, was originally nothing but an astrological and alchemical remedy for the Malum de Francos. The epidemic of syphilis and the birth of Luther, the reformer, were only the tangible results subsequently attributed to the conjunction of November 25th, 1484. Its intangible results were, however, of much greater importance. Although the great European witch craze did not start before the second half of the 16th century, historians are in agreement that the signal for the witch hunt was the papal bull Summus Desiderantes Affectibus. The date it was promulgated is striking. November 5th, 1484, right after the conjunction of the 25th of November. We know that Innocent VIII would become a formidable adversary of Kabbalah, he would, persecute, he would persecute Pico della Mirandola and threaten the canon Marsilio Ficino. That implies that he constantly received information about the occult sciences, an event as important to the conjunction of 1484, which he could read about in the rather worrisome work by Paul de Middleburg, took place in time to magnify his fears. If he had waited a few years, Lichtenberger's pamphlet would have shown him that the little prophet he would have to defend himself against was a monk dressed in white. It is more than probable that the treatise of Paul of Middleburg called the attention of the Pope to what was happening in Germany, but the bull, recommending extreme repression of the cult of witchcraft in Germany, represented the immediate consequence of an encounter between Innocent and Henry Institoris, Inquisitor for Upper Germany, and the brain behind the Malleus Maleficarum, 1486. Institoris was a crank. Bull in hand, he went from place to place, arousing the sincere hatred of all local bishops. Fanatics like him or the Inquisitor Pedro Arbues of Zaragoza would usually meet a sudden death at that time. Only a miracle may have saved Institoris, who died, as it seems, of natural causes between 1501 and 1503. The action taken by the German Inquisitor is just an isolated case of the end of the 15th century. The prosecution of witches grows more intense in the 16th century as a result of the Reformation. Systematic witch hunting did not start until the end of the 16th century, 1589 in Germany, a time when the Holy Inquisition was no longer active in Northern Europe, at least in Protestant Germany. Even the Great Trial of 1589 in Bavaria was instituted by the lay authorities. One can legitimately conclude that the 1484 bull was indeed the signal for the witch craze, but the church subsequently withdrew from actual prosecution during the 16th century. John Tedeschi has brilliantly confirmed this. Joseph Hansen and more recently Geoffrey Burton Russell have shown that the great witch burnings took place in the richest European countries, France, including Lombardy under French jurisdiction, the Rhineland, and the Netherlands. In none of these territories did the Inquisition conduct the prosecution and trials. 
Though obvious for the Protestant countries, this statement might seem surprising with respect to France, but the outstanding work of Robert Mandrau has demonstrated that until 1682, when the Ordinance Royale of Louis XIV dismissed witches' trials as irrelevant to justice itself, it was the local lay authorities who burned witches. One can assert without any doubt that there is an immediate connection between the witch craze and the European Reformation. In a sense, the witch craze was the social counterpart of the destruction of religious images. In both cases, the victim was human fantasy. The idea behind the Malleus is to stop the social disorder caused by the exercise of magic. This book became an ally to the Reformation and Counter-Reformation in the 16th century, prefiguring the spirit of those movements. <laughs>